Peace be upon you. So the Quran is a message for all people for all time. But there are certain aspects of the Quran that the full appreciation of it will be more relatable to certain generations. For instance, the linguistic excellence of the Arabic Quran. While it can be appreciated today, I don't believe the level of appreciation even by the most studied scholar of the Arabic language can match the level of astonishment that must have been felt from the original recipients of the Quran during the time of the Prophet. This is because over 1400 years the Arabic language has evolved and the Arabic of the Quran is no longer used in common speech. So the word selection and placement will not have the same level of impact on somebody who's studying Arabic Quran today as it did to the individuals who spoke Quraysh Arabic at the time of its revelation. Or another example of an aspect of the Quran that probably more appreciated today than it was in the past is a lot of the scientific discoveries that are mentioned in the Quran. For instance, God in the Quran repeatedly describes mountains as stabilizers. The reason is because today, with the scientific understanding we have around plate tectonics and the function of mountains, and how when these plates collide, they form pegs that stabilize these plates, that we fully appreciate the aspect of describing the mountains as stabilizers in a book revealed 1400 years ago. Now, in the past, they probably read the mountains as stabilizers, they formulated certain understandings, but with the understanding we have today, we have a higher level of appreciation because we know about the depth of the word selection God chose when describing these mountains. And this is a given that in the future, with the understanding and the technological advancement and whatever other discoveries they have, there's going to be certain aspects of the Quran that the future generations are going to be able to have a more in-depth understanding, a deeper appreciation for, based on the knowledge that God will bless them, that even today we won't be able to fully grasp. Now the reason I'm bringing this up is because there is a prophecy in the Quran that I believe was more impactful for the individuals who were alive during the revelation of the Quran, because they were able to witness this firsthand. But now, today, 1400 years later, at best what we can do is try to piece together, based on historical events and accounts, what took place and why this prophecy was so profound. And this prophecy has to do with Surah 30 of the Quran, entitled the Romans, or in Arabic, Al-Rum. And what we need to understand in order to fully appreciate this prophecy was what year was this revelation revealed to Prophet Muhammad? And every surah in the Quran, for the most part, is considered either Meccan or Medinan. And the significance here is where was the Prophet when this revelation came? And the one date that we have with high level of certainty was the year where, when the Prophet and the believers migrated from Mecca to Medina, which is the start of the Islamic calendar, which corresponds to the year 622. Now, the reason that that's important is because Surah 30 is considered to be the 84th revelation of the Quran. And the 87th revelation was the first Medinan Surah, which is Surah 2 of the Quran. And in between that, you had two short revelations, uh, Surah 29 and 83. So if we know for a fact that 622 was the Hijra, 
then we can say with a fair amount of certainty that if Surah 30 was the 84th revelation, that it happened shortly before the year 622. And why is that important? It's because this surah, this prophecy and the opening uh, verses of the surah are dealing with a historical event that was taking place at that time and a prophecy that was to come shortly after. So let's start by reading Surah 30. It reads, In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, A-L-M, Alif Lam Mim. Then you get to verse 2, and in Arabic it reads, Golibat Arum. Now the word Arum simply just means the Romans. So the question is, what does the meaning of Golibat? The word Golibat comes from the root Golib, which means to overcome or to defeat. But there are certain grammatical aspects we have to take in consideration. For one, this is Golibat, which means that they were overcome. And this is written in the past tense, that the Romans were defeated. Additionally, the uh, Arabic is Golub as opposed to Ghalib. If it was Ghalib, this means that the Romans were the ones who were doing the overcoming or defeating. But since it's Golub, this is informing us that it was the Romans who were overcame or were defeated. So from this understanding, we know that this verse is informing us that it was the Romans who were defeated. So what does this have to do uh, historically? In the year of this revelation, you had a war that was going on between the Persians and the Romans. And this was con uh, called the Byzantine-Sasanian War. And it took place from 602 through 628. And the belief is that this verse is in context to the Sasanian um, siege of Jerusalem that took place in the year 614. The historical records regarding this siege are sparse, but obviously this was a major crushing blow to the Christian religious authority at the time. Historically, it's understood that the Jews of Jerusalem joined forces with the Persians to overtake Jerusalem. Several previous defeats by the Persians against the Romans caused weakness in the Byzantine Empire, which enabled the Persians and their Jewish allies to capture Jerusalem, following a three-week siege. Ancient sources claim that somewhere between 57,000 to 66,500 people were slain, and some 35,000 people were deported and presumably sold into slavery. Upon taking over Jerusalem, it was documented that the city was said to have been burnt down. However, uh, neither widespread burning nor destruction of churches have been found in archaeological records. But one thing that the Persians did upon entry was confiscate ancient relics of the Christian faith, most notably the True Cross. The True Cross is believed to be the physical remnants from the cross from which Jesus was crucified upon. And the Sasanians took the uh, true cross to their capital in Sisyphon. Now this is just setting the stage for the next verse. So in Surah 3, we read the following, and first in Arabic. <laughs> 
So if we were to translate this, it would be fi, which is in, adana, which I'll get to what it means, al-ardi, which is either land or earth, wahum, and they, min, which means from, badi, which is after, qalbihim, their defeat, sayaqlibun, they will overcome. So now we're seeing that it's saying after their defeat, the Romans, they will overcome. And notice this time it's written in the future tense and uh, not in the past tense. And they're the ones who are doing the defeating, not the ones who were defeated. So let's look at this word here where it says Adana. So in Adana, the land. So what does this mean? Verse 3 indicates that the defeat will occur in the Adana Ardi. The word Adana has the derivative meaning of being near, low, or few. By adding the alif with the hamza on top, at the beginning of the word, this makes the translation as not just near, low, or few, but the nearest, the lowest, the fewest. And al-ardi throughout the Quran is translated as the most part as the earth, but as in the context of the ground or land rather than just the planet. Based on the context of this expression, this verse could be understood as either the nearest land or the lowest land. And you'll see in translations, it translated as both ways. But what does that mean, the nearest land or the lowest land? If we go with the understanding that this is the nearest land, it doesn't seem to make much sense. And the reason is, is because this battle took place some 1500 kilometers from where uh, Muhammad was at that time. So does it make sense to say that it's the nearest land? So a more suitable understanding is that it's the lowest land. But what does that even mean? When Sasanians took over Jerusalem, they didn't just take over that one city. They took over the entire region. This includes the neighboring areas as well. One historical account of this siege states that many of the troops were stationed in the nearby city of Jericho. And this is the, the, the passage. According to Antiochus uh, Strategos, the abbot Modestos, a Catholic patriarch at the time, set out to Jericho where he mustered a force of the Byzantine troops which were stationed there. However, once the Byzantine troops caught sight of the overwhelming Persian army encamped outside the city walls, they fled fearing a suicidal battle. So it's showing that this battle wasn't just at J Jerusalem, but it stretched out as far as Jericho. And what's interesting is that Jericho is also in the vicinity of the Dead Sea Basin. Now, why is it important to bring this up? The reason is, if you look at the lowest point on the planet Earth, which landmass is the lowest below sea level, what you find out is it's the Dead Sea Basin. And it varies based on the, uh, uh, the, the water in the Dead Sea, but currently it's about 414 meters below sea level. And what about Jericho? Jericho, as well as being the oldest city in the world, it's also the lowest city on earth at 258 meters below sea level. So when God is saying that the, uh, the Romans will be defeated, and it says in the lowest land, this is uh, stating something that took place in the past, that obviously this information would have been disseminated. But the fact that it's calling it the lowest land, this is something that until modern times was not understood, that these were the lowest points on the planet Earth in the entire world. 
Now, if you look at just historical records, you know, as it's specified, these are sparse at best. You have three accounts, you know, roughly giving some indication of kind of what took place. And there isn't much to account for. But the fact that this is happening within the vicinity of these events is should give us reason to be awed by the miracle of the Quran. And if we continue in Surah 30, verse 3, it reads, In a few years, meaning that this event is going to take place in a few years, uh, for God is the command decision from before and from after. And that day, the believers will rejoice. So what is this discussing, this few years that this will happen? From 30 verse 2 and 3, it informs us that within a few years from the revelation, this prophecy in the Quran, that the Romans will overcome their defeat. So it's not saying that from a few years of their defeat, but from a few years from that verse, Surah 30, verse 3, that the Romans will overcome. The Arabic word that's used for few, as in, in a few years, is bidda'i. And this has a meaning of three to nine years inclusively. So it's within three years to nine years. Now, since this prophecy happened shortly before the year 622, for this prophecy to be true, the victory should have happened before the year 631. So what took place during that time? By 622, the Roman emperor Heraclius had assembled an army to retake the territory lost to the Sasanian Empire. The tides began to shift in favor of the Byzantine Empire after the failed siege of the Byzantine capital of Constantinople in 626, led by the Persian king Khusro II. Heraclius then allied his empire with the Turks and started a successful yet risky counterattack deep into the Persian heartland. At that time, there was also internal strife within the leadership of the Persian Empire. On February 25th, 628, the son of Khusro II, Shero, captured Sestaphon and imprisoned Khusro II, and then proclaimed himself as Shah of the Sasanian Empire and assumed a dynastic name of Kavad II. He proceeded to have all his brothers and half-brothers executed, including the next rightful heir to the throne, Mardan Shah, who was Khusro's favorite son. The murder of all his brothers stripped the Sasanian dynasty of a future competent ruler. Three days later, he ordered to have his imprisoned father executed. His sisters reportedly criticized and scolded him for his barbaric actions which made him filled with remorse. Due to Kavad's actions, his reign is seen as a turning point in Sasanian history and has been argued by some scholars as playing a key role in the fall of the Sasanian Empire. This led to a civil war in the Sasanian Empire and a period when normal government was suspended and caused the reversal of all the Sasanian gains in the war against the Byzantines. In 628, following the overthrow of Khusro II, Kavada made a peace with Heraclius, but Kavada would only have a brief reign, as just months after declaring himself Shah, he died from the plague on the 6th of September 628. The conquered city 
and the cross would remain in Sasanian hands until they were returned by the next king, Sharabars. Pending on the source, it is believed that on the date of the 21st of March, either 630 or 629, Heraclius marched in triumph in Jerusalem with the true cross within a window of the prophecy set in the Quran. So if this happened either in 629 or 630, depending on the source, it's still within that window of this revelation happening shortly before 622 that it was fulfilled. Now, the next question is, why would the believers rejoice? Because if you read this passage, these verses, from a surface level, it seems like the Quran is very pro-Roman. If it's cheering the fact that the Romans uh, came, rised up again and won. But notice, the verse does not state that the believers will rejoice because of this victory. It just states that on that day, the believers will rejoice. So was there any other event that took place around that date that would cause the believers to rejoice? And again, these are not things that we can validate with absolute certainty today. And I believe that these are aspects that were for the believers of that time. Because as they got this information about the, the Romans' victory, I believe this corresponded with the believer's victory in Mecca. This is because around the year, December 629 or January 630, the believers were able to conquer the Quraysh tribe and reclaim Mecca. In 630, Muhammad returned to Mecca with a large number of his followers. He enters the city peacefully and eventually all its citizens accept Islam. The Prophet clears the idols and images out of the Kaaba and rededicates it to the worship of God alone. Now this is just speculation on my part because again, these dates are not ironclad. But if we read these verses in the Quran and try to piece together what was transpiring in the community at that time, you can understand that as this information was trickling down to them about the Romans' victory, that this was the date when the uh, Muslims were able to gain victory in Mecca and were able to reclaim the Kaaba. But this had broader implications as well. Because in addition for uh, getting this victory, this 20-year battle between the Persians and the Romans where each side was not able to get a definitive victory, what it actually did was it deteriorated both nations and as Islam started rising from the what was considered the backwaters of Arabia, uh, they were able to expand into all these territories. And then these adversaries who would have potentially squashed their um, uh, spread were now weakened from years of fighting. After the death of Muhammad in 632, Abu Bakr was nominated the first Khalifa of the Muslims. While Abu Bakr spent most his energy working to keep the Muslim community in Arabia from turning into feuding factions, he died two years later in 634 and was succeeded by Umar, the second Khalifa who ruled until 644. Umar found himself the ruler of a large unified state with an organized army and he used this as a tool to spread Islam further in the Middle East. Umar's early campaigns were against the Byzantine Empire. Following the decisive battle of Yarmouk in 636, the former Byzantine states of Syria, Palestine, and Lebanon were conquered by the Muslim armies. 
Shortly afterwards, the Muslim army attacked the Sasanian Empire in Iraq, gaining a massive victory in 637 at the Battle of Qadisya, and gradually conquering more and more of Iraq over the next dozen years. This conquest was made much easier by the weakness of the Sasanian Empire, which was wounded by internal conflicts and a lengthy war with the Byzantine Empire. Within a few years, the Muslims had conquered parts of Egypt to south and Anatolia and Armenia to the north. So if it wasn't for this long drawn out war waging back and forth between these two empires, there would have been a very good chance that the Muslim expansion throughout the Middle East would have never been able to take root. And think about how God planned all this out. That God saw these internal feudings and factions that seemed like it had nothing to do with the Muslim community at the time of the revelation of the Quran. But these were all setting the stage for this future expansion so that more and more people could be able to hear, understand, and God willing, accept the Quran. God willing, we're going to end there. And again, I apologize for some of these historical facts. Uh, I try to do my best research and just wanted to get a glimpse because these were some verses that for years I always try to understand. And I believe that they were meant specifically for the people at the time of the prophet. But God willing, we're able to get a little glimpse to this miracle. And if you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at Qurantalk at gmail.com. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran and see a word-by-word -word translation of the Arabic Quran, along with a concordance of all the derivative meanings of the roots, please download the Quran City app on the iOS app store. And if you uh, like the podcast, please share it. Let other people know. Until next time, peace and God bless.